I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Hi there. Today, you're going to meet Jarvis J. Masters. His book, That Bird Has My Wings, the autobiography of an innocent man on death row, was released in 2009. He will not be here with me today because he's still on death row for a crime he says he did not commit. And I'll be speaking with him on the phone from San Quentin State Prison in California, where he has lived for the past 41 years. Now, I first learned about his story back in 2014 when I interviewed Buddhist monk Pima Chodron, and she suggested that I read this memoir. His story of a young boy victimized by addiction and poverty and violence in the foster care system and later the justice system touched me so deeply and still does today. It was back in 1981, when he was only 19 years old, that Jarvis was convicted of armed robbery and sent to San Quentin. Four years later, prison guard Howell Birchfield was stabbed to death while on night duty. And though Jarvis was locked in his cell at the time of the murder, he was among those convicted of murder and he was sentenced to death. Jarvis is scheduled to have a hearing in federal court at the end of October to overturn that conviction and death sentence. He has long maintained his innocence and that claim has been supported by many others. So this conversation is different from any other interview we've done with a book club author. I wanted to, of course, sit down with him in person, but it is against California state law to bring cameras into a prison to interview a specific inmate. So thankfully Jarvis was allowed to call me on the phone and that's how I'm able to bring you the story of this extraordinary man and the author behind our next book club selection, That Bird Has My Wings. This is Global Tell Link. You have a prepaid call from Jarvis Masters, an inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin, San Quentin, California. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. To accept this call, say or dial 5 now. Thank you for using Global Tell Link. Hello? Hey, Jarvis. <laughs> How are you doing? <laughs> oh, my gosh. This has been a conversation that has literally been a decade in the making. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. How are you feeling today? How does it feel to finally be having this conversation? Well, you know, the first thing I thought about when I knew that I will be having this conversation is to say thank you and thank you and thank you for, I mean, so many years that I've I've seen you raise your hand and help me in ways where, you know, it just seemed like I, every time I got a second win, you know, uh, and I really appreciate that. And that's the first thing I knew I was going to say to you. Mm, well, listen, when Pima Chodron first introduced me to this story almost mm-hmm. a decade ago, and I read it, I felt for you, and from time to time, I have to say, it's not like I think of you every day, but I think of you in the moments when I feel some of my greatest sense of freedoms, like 
I live in a space where I'm surrounded by trees and nature. Uh, I love to hike on the mountain in Maui, and I have these God moments. And I often think of you not being able to see the same sky that I get to see. And, you know, I was hiking the other day, and, like, the sun was, like, reflecting off of the ocean in such a way that you could see the clouds also in the ocean. Have you ever mm-hmm. imagined or seen that where you can see so that it looks the, so the ocean's like a mirror? Right. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, you don't get to experience that. And I think about. No, uh, I don't. I don't. You don't. I don't. And no. when you're in, in that sense of that state of being incarcerated from for 41 years, do you still long to see the sky? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I think I told somebody one time that the that question was, what would the first thing you want to do when you get out? And I guess they supposed that I would want to go somewhere, you know. Yeah. And my answer was, you know, I just want to be outside at night. I want to know what night feels like, you know. Mm. Um, that is something that, that just comes to me every time. When it gets dark on the window opposite of my uh, cell, I, I think about night and what that air might feel like. So it means a lot to me that, you know, I can see certain things through other people. But it also means a lot to me that other people can see things and not see things. Yeah, it's sort of like someone drives Pacifico Highway and and they just going for a ride or something, and they never turn to pivot to see the ocean because it's right. just there, you know. Yeah, it's just there. No one looks at that. And I, I think about that. I think that a lot of times that's all I would want to do is see that. Yeah, I would just ask park let's just stop right here so I, I do i do think about that a lot but uh i also think about all the many times people get a chance to see something and they just don't see it yes i remember you describe in that bird has my wings the moment that you are sent to the hospital for a right. hearing problem and you were so surprised because you had just casually mentioned that, that and then they come and take you to the hospital and you didn't know where you were being taken to and the experience of being in the car. Can you talk about that for a moment? Is that the last time you were out? No, I've been out several other times, One, a couple times when I went on a hunger strike. But the one time that you're, you're referring to, yeah, that's the time where I kept seeing everybody talking to themselves in the car. And I didn't even know that people had these kind of cell phones where they can just talk, you know. <laughs> uh, I thought I was tripping, right? I thought this was like, and I asked the guy, I said, hey, man, why does everybody talk to themselves like this? Is this for real? And, you know, they laughed and said, no, no, you look closely. They have something in their ear. And I said, whoa, yeah. And it felt like I asked a dumb question, but. I remember my first action seeing that, you know, my first reaction. Mm. Um, Because the world has changed so much. The world has changed so much. I mean, 41 years ago? Wow. I'm telling you, it's the same thing. I mean, when when you're on these highways and, you know, you get to this section where every car goes one way and the other one goes this way, and it just seems like they're moving in this, you know, harmonious 
flow of motion, I mean, that is the most scariest thing in the world to me because I just didn't know how all these cars would just move in all these directions, and they just seemed like they knew what they were doing. For me, I just knew we were going to get hit. I just, it, everything in my being says, this car's going to crash, you know. Wow. But that is the 41 years. That's what 41 years feels like. Reading your memoir, uh, That Bird Has My Wings, the neglect, the betrayal, the violence you witnessed and participated in, I thought about you surviving it, sort of surviving it, if we want to call being on death row surviving it. You at least are still alive and thought about all the kids who went through it, are still going through it, and never survived you know, I wrote a book last year, co-authored a book with um, the leading child trauma specialist in the country is a man named Dr. Bruce Perry, who I'd been interviewing for years about what happens to young kids and their brains when they are raised in traumatic environments. And last year, we decided to sort of put that into full print. And the book is called What happened to you. And mostly he speaks right. about how what happens to you at a very early age, right. from the time you are two months in the crib, whether or not you're getting the attention that you need when you cry, whether or not you're getting the nurturing and support you need, up until the time that you're six years old, when your personality is basically formed, that you are, based on the way you're being treated, forming your opinion about what the world is and what the world can and will do to and for you. So what what happened to you, do you think, that shaped your worldview that allowed you to be where you are right now? I mean, when we read That Bird Has My Wings, it's a study in how the trauma of what happened to you as a little boy affected the way you felt about how you would be received in the world right. and re- affected your, your, your actions. Can you tell us? I know oh. we, we have a short time, but can you tell us how what happened to you has put you where you are? Well, I, I think what shaped my worldview is really how I was treated by my, how my parents were treated. I always thought as a kid they were not being treated well. I always thought she was sick and they didn't do anything for her. And I always felt like there was something that was against me. Uh, But I was always saved by someone caring for me. Uh, What got me into this place was the fact that I just stopped caring about who I was. I didn't want to know who I was. You know, I was like, you know, in the book where I just was angry you know, and upset. And a lot of that anger didn't really tell me I'm angry. It just had the attitude and the behavior patterns of anger. So I think that's what really, really set it off and made made it almost, you know, inevitable that I would end up in a place like this. Mm. Well, I can't get over the fact that you wrote the book while in solitary confinement with just a filler of a pen. Yesterday, I took out uh, the filler of a pen and tried to write with it. And, like, after five minutes, my the, the tips of my fingers start hurting, and they go red, and it's like, whoo, that is a difficult thing to do. <laughs> I, I tried to walk in your shoes or walk in your penmanship for a moment, and I was like, well, I would, I would have given up on this thing. 
No, I mean, when I first got a pen, a regular-sized pen, I didn't like it. It was too fat, you know? Yeah. So it just didn't feel right in my hand. That pen filler, though, it, one thing about that, Oprah, when you write with that thing, it does not allow you to go quickly over subjects. Right. Because you're, slows- you're gripping it so tightly. You're gripping it so tightly. Yeah, it slows you down. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. It doesn't allow you to skip anything. It just makes you stop at points in your life that are just devastating. And I felt that all the way through the book. I wrote some things that I thought I would never write about. Give us an example. There was a part in the book where my father was whooping me and my sisters or something. And I heard my mother say, just don't kill them. Yeah. You know, when I was not going to ever say something like that, I, I had sort of suppressed it. And when I wrote that, I said, whoa, whoa. My perception was challenged of what I always thought my mother was. Yeah. It definitely went into this challenge mode. And I felt I felt it being real evil to say. And. Can I interrupt you here? Because, you know, what I've seen over the years with interviewing thousands of kids who were abused since I was like a young reporter, uh, so maybe hundreds of kids would be more accurate, but interviewing multiple kids who are abused, they still try to find a way to love the parent, to defend the parent, when in fact it's so hard to admit that your mother did not protect you and couldn't protect you. Right, right. And when I heard that, I heard that, I saw that. I saw that visual. And if I could have said something differently about that, I would have, but it was already said, you know. Yeah. And it just felt like if I don't keep this, something's missing, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, there's just something not real about this. Was it also hard to write about her being beaten by your father in that moment where she's crawling on the floor and there you all are under the bed? Was that hard? Uh, no, she was like some uh, some kind of hero, you know. She was the hero. I mean, she was the protector. If I thought about who was going to read it, I probably would have thought that. But I was like, I'm so glad she sacrifice like that because we wouldn't even be alive. You wouldn't even be alive now had your mother not in that moment, that particular moment when your father was coming in and wanted to apparently kill his own children as well as kill her, that she crawled on the floor and fought him. She fought him and then ended up crawling on the floor and coming, reaching for you children on the bed. So you saw her as a, I can see that, how she would be a a, a hero in this moment. Yeah. You wouldn't be thinking of, why did you put us in this position in the first place? You're thinking you saved us in this position. Yeah, yeah, all of us felt that way. Yeah. We didn't necessarily know what blood was, but yeah, she, you can hear her and you you know that she she was fighting for us. So... Yeah, I always thought that, Oprah. I always thought that, you know, that was one reason for me to love her even more. Yes. Um, So you talked about you wouldn't even be alive today had your mother not, in that moment, rescued the children. That that story that you tell in the very beginning of the book. 
But right. there were it's because of the years of neglect and the years of not being seen and valued. What I couldn't believe, but then I remember this was this was a different time. This was like. 70s and not after the years of the Oprah Winfrey show where we talk so much about child abuse and child neglect and also ch- child care services. I couldn't believe your child your your child care providers who would go into these homes and be tricked by the foster care parents. Like aren't there signals you would be looking for of whether or not what they're presenting to us is real or not? Well, I never seen anybody lie so good, you know, number 1. And I never thought that they would oversee something, number two. And number three, I guess, it was because I knew they were desperately, I didn't know this, but I sort of did, that they were desperately trying to find homes for people, you know, for kids. How do I know that? I, I, I know that because it just felt like they would have that little conversation with you and you, you're driving in a car and they said, well, you, we, we know you're going to like this home. We know you're going to like this home. There's not a home better than this for you. You know, that kind of conversation. And I, I, I tried liking it. Yeah. What I learned from this process of reading the book is that there are people out there, certainly amazing, generous, open-minded, caring people like Mamie and Dennis who took you in, who want to do it for all the right reasons. And then there are people who are in the foster care business because they want the money and they really don't like children. So when you encounter somebody who really doesn't like you and is trying to do whatever they can to torment and destroy you, it also devalued you in a sense, don't you think? Right, right, right. You know it's the business... Well, I didn't know it was business until after the second foster home, when they stack you up, you know, when they have triple bunk beds and all that in one room. But once I learned how to run away, there was nothing going to hurt me anymore. Mm-hmm. When I knew how to run away, it was over with. You can put me in any home you want me in, but after an hour, and I always compared them to Dennis and Mamie. You know, if the they original. wasn't living up to that, Yeah, it's... it's the gigs up but like you said back in those days you know you can hitchhike and you didn't feel threatened by that right so hitchhiking was not something that we know today no you couldn't do it now as a kid nope not for one second so i love the moment in the book where you describe that you still felt loved and you were carried by the love that other people had for you. Let's talk about Mamie and Dennis, that first foster home for a while. Do you think that that was the establishing root, the love that they were able to give to you is the thing that has carried you through even to this moment? Yeah. Yeah, it was that that was the that was the marker right there. That was the marker. And if you didn't live up to that, that was not anything else was just not acceptable. Yeah. I asked that question because for people who are listening to us or reading this, I want them to know, want people to know, when you love somebody fiercely and you really allow them to see that they're valued, that you literally leave a heart print that can last forever and that can take you through 41 years in prison and, you know, on death row, because that's what's happened right. to you. I mean, that, I can say that today, 
You know, that right there was what I remember the most. Anything short of that, you know, over the years, like, I mean, it was at one point where I stopped trying to describe it to people because they couldn't believe I was actually in a home like that. You know? Yeah, where somebody loved you. Um, yeah, like that. That can't be possible, mm. you know. And this is not possible. You just lie. Why are you lying like that? That's what you want to happen. It was never like that. So you, it doesn't feel like, in the way you write, that bird has my wings, because you've been in boys' home and boys' home and boys' home, it doesn't feel like you ever feared actually going to prison. It feels like you always sort of in the back of your mind knew that that eventually was what was going to happen to you. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just to give you an example, the, one of the first tattoos I ever had was a picture of a gun tower. Yep. So, you know, yeah, that was the sign. I never thought there was another direction. You know, it was at one time when I got on the youth authority, I thought that. But I, I always thought that my what was going on internally was going to end up putting me in prison or dead. Mm. Are you surprised that you're still alive? I, I am. I am surprised that I'm still alive. And I'm happy that my mother gave me a chance as well. Yes. You know, you put both those together, there seems to be some kind of passage that's opening, you know, rather, no matter how small it is, it opens a way of thinking that at some point, you know, you're going to run into something that's going to kill you. But I always, always believe that, yes. Yeah. So you always thought that you would end up in prison. You did not think you would end up on death row because... I remember the first arm robbery. I think the one you describe in the book where you all went into the store and, you know, you got convinced that you were going to make some money and that whole thing went awry. But you being worried because guns went off, you were worried that somebody had possibly gotten shot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I I did. I mean, I never, ever thought that Jeff Rowe had... You know, death row was just Charles Manson type stuff, you know? Yeah. Uh, I never thought death row had any kind of name for me. I, I, up until the time I was sentenced to death, I always felt sorry for people who were on death row. It was just so far away from my thinking. And so, for a long time after being put on death row for a crime that you say you did not commit... It's still so baffling to even me now to this day, even when I saw the story that David Begmiel just did on CBS. It makes no sense that you're on death row for something you haven't even been... For, for, for the people who actually committed the crime and they know committed the crime are not on death row, but you are on death row for conspiracy to commit the crime. It makes no sense. Can you explain it to us? Well, I've always took the position of this. What that judge said to me was how I got on death row. There's no other way I can see myself coming to death row then and now other than someone dehumanizing you to the point where they don't recognize you as a human being. So what are you saying? Tell us what the judge said. She she basically said that you you, you, you shouldn't have never been born. You know, it's that. I mean, how can you 
not see that and not have this attitude about sentence you to death. That was my take on it. Yeah, she she said something that was really painful. Like, uh, yeah, she was saying, I don't even know why your mother had you because people who don't know don't know how to take care of children shouldn't have them, shouldn't have them, and you really shouldn't have been born yeah. is basically what she said. Yeah. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. And you're 23, 24 years old in this kind of trouble, knowing that you've never done anything in your life like this. When they say something like that, you, you hear it. You hear it in the most shortest way. Bottom line, you shouldn't have been born. And that made you feel what, Jarvis? Oh, man, I... You know, that's the thing that just makes you stare at a wall for a long time, you know? Mm -hmm. That's the thing that makes you just try to pace yourself. I mean, it was just... It was just... You know what, Oprah? It was like this. I remember when I first got taken away from my parents. My feet couldn't even hit the ground. And that judge was trying to do everything to make it seem that I I deserve to be alive. I deserve to have parents. I deserve to blah, blah, blah. Fast forward 20 years, not even 20 years, 18 years. And now it's the same thing, but now I'm being sentenced to death. So I did see the contrast between that, just staring at a wall. Mm. Uh, but, you know, to your point, I, I I didn't understand it. I didn't understand it. I think I was not trying to defend myself. I was not someone who was saying, this is my business, I'm going to try to defend myself. No. I knew they were in trouble, and I knew that I would be facing a, 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 a more quicker death if I got into their business, you know? Yeah. So... I just kicked back and sort of like watched the show. But I never thought that by doing that, I would end up on death row and not them. That was shocking. I, I didn't see that coming. I didn't begin to even think that that might be the case. Mm. I thought, you know, the jury's going to find me not guilty and that would have been it. For a long time after being put on death row, you must have felt abandoned by the justice system and by everybody. But little by little, people began to take up your cause to help you fight for yourself. What does it feel like now to know that you have so many people on your side rooting for you? Everything that judge said is not true, number one. And I had a, I had a, I hate to say it, but I had a greater chance uh, on death row to find my true self. And that's such a contradiction. Yeah. I mean, it actually cheers me up to even think that. Yeah. It's kind of like, I remember I had the great honor of, I'm not just name dropping here because this is one of the great honors of my life. I got invited to spend time at Nelson Mandela's house and I ended up spending 10 nights and having 29 meals with him. Wow. Sitting at his table every day. And one of the things he shared with me was that how, you know, he was changed by prison. That prison actually made him a different kind of man. Right. And certainly the same thing can be said for you, that you had a true spiritual awakening there, and that's hard enough to do when circumstances are easy. How would you describe the process of coming to terms with yourself? Well, I I think by 
being in the kind of trouble I was in, that in order to save my life, they they would have to go into my past, you know, and they create a narrative. It was some kind of 80-page whatever thing they did, you know, trying to trace my background and who I was and parents and all that. And I didn't like it. I thought it was really professional stuff. I thought this is what they get paid to do. Uh, they script me in what I thought had been common throughout my younger years. And I got mad at my attorney. I said, no, no, no. What I'm going to do is I'm going to write my own story. You know, I'm going to write it myself. You know, I, I did poorly at it, but I did bring out the points that I thought was that moved me from one way to the other. And then when I got, I, I, I met Melody, my investigator, and she said, you know, these are some good stories here. Could you put them in context, you know? And I said, yeah. But at the same time, she was giving me these books on masculinity, you know, because I was just so stuck up in thinking that, you know, I was the convict. I was just like everyone else. You know, I was wearing my coat the same way and blah, blah, blah. And I started reading about masculinity and what a man was, and I started noticing things that were signs, you know, that was like, whoa. And one of those first stories I wrote was Scars, where I was just, I just seen the scars of people out there on the yard. And that was an awakening for me. I mean, that was a life-changing experience because I realized that I was able to see things and write about them. And when you first get published, you know, in a story, it seems like it's just fuel. You know, you want to write more. You want to write more. That acknowledgement. And I think that was the start, you know. And then I found some pamphlet that was going to give me a free book, and it was Life and Relationship to Death. And I, I was more curious about how, you know, how that works not so much from a spiritual point of view, but just how that works. And then I start using my stories to write the narrative of other people's stories, you know. And that just seems to move me into knowing more people. Mm -hmm. And knowing those people seems to make me feel better about myself. You know, and as I start to feel better about myself, I start to care about other people. And it just went from there till I met Tama. And then I met a couple of other people, you know, and it just started to validate me as someone who can make this place the best of me or the worst in me. Uh, I started staying in my cell. I started meditating. Well, I started being quiet first, and then I started meditating. And then I just moved through all these corridors of Oprah just moved through them all. Corridors in your own mind, you mean? Well, you know, yeah, sort of, yeah. In my own mind, because I I start, you know, people start wanting you to write more. Buddhist teachers are starting to want to visit you more. Friends, new friends become old friends. And it just moved me to things that I could have never imagined. And me, meeting you... I mean, knowing that you had read my books those years ago was just another way of me seeing, whoa, 
and I started really, really loving myself, liking myself more than I could anyone else, you know. This is this is a thing I want you to share with us because I think for so many people, I love what you said in the very beginning of our conversation. People are out here who can see, who don't see, who are passing the ocean every day but don't notice the ocean. They're just driving down the 101 or driving down the Pacific Coast Highway and it's just there. They're not noticing the people on the street corners or paying attention to the, to the sky. Tell me how one survives with one's mind intact because so many people lose their mind, particularly on death row and in solitary confinement. How have you managed to keep your mind intact and to stay a positive being in a world where you rarely get to see the sky? Well, I started realizing there was an opposite of me that wanted to see the sky. I started realizing that, you know, when people say, I'm going to go to the refrigerator and I'm going to go find something to eat. I'm on the phone and I hear them say this. I instantly know when that refrigerator opens, there's a certain freedom that that person doesn't see. And I take heart to that. I don't say a lot about it, but I realize, boom, right there, you know, that's where I want to be. It's not me being where the ocean is. It's me being able to make that instant choice um, that carries me to, you know, wanting to see greater and more things. How did I not lose my mind? Sometimes I think, you know, not. It's, I lost my mind because I can't, uh, I haven't lost it, you know. So I think it's just people. And I think what I found out more so than anything else is that there's so much suffering outside the prison that you know that they themselves are somewhere in prison. Yes. During the pandemic, I'm sure you heard from people. I used to hear people say this all the time during the pandemic. I know a lot of people who actually use the term, you know, I feel like I'm in prison. I feel like I've been, you know, locked up. I mean, a lot of people felt that, which I say, well, you don't know what that's like until you actually don't have the choice to, as you say, go to the refrigerator, take a bath when you want to, get a glass of water when you want to, get a soda when you want to, get, you know, watch television when you want, you know, all those different things that most people just sort of take for granted and are not relating to what it really means when you are locked up. Yes. Right, 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 right. I'm sure you and, had people you know, say I'm, that to you, too, who were doing, going through the pandemic, right? Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, like, you know, I, now I know your pain, Jarvis, you know. Now I know what it feels like to be in prison, you know. Um, I know now what it's not when you can't go outside. And me, I feel like, you know, I'm not going to burst your bubble on this. Um, <laughs> that's what you're feeling. That's what you're feeling. That's cool. But, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, are you are you, are you fucking kidding me? I mean, seriously? Um, <laughs> no. But it's just, you know, I'm, a lot of times I, I want to still be their friends, too, you know. so Yeah, so you're not um, going to say you don't even know what you're talking about. No. No, you don't know what you're talking about, you know. And it's sad to think that you do. Yeah, you know, I have a few friends who 
try to remind me of their prison days. Yeah, but, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I just don't say anything. What was the hardest part of writing uh, That Bird Has My Wings? Telling the truth. Yeah. About what had happened to you. Yeah. Yeah. Telling the truth. That was the hardest part. Mm. I want to read, you know, you've been on death row now since 1990. Whoa. And I, even just reading that, I just think, who all the things that have happened in my life since 1990. And now in October, a U.S. federal court is going to hear your appeal. Are you hopeful for a good outcome? Yeah. I'm hopeful for a good outcome, but I want to realize that there are two of them. I have to be in a good place if there's not the kind of outcome I want. So this is where the Buddhism steps into me, you know, comes out, where I realize that there's two sides of this, you know, and you got to figure out a way to be in both. You have to realize that both outcomes are there, and you can't get, you can't move more closer to getting out, and you can't go as far as to think you're not getting out. You know, where is the center at? And... That's the hard part right there, because so many times you just know that you got the right legal team, you got the right things going on that for 25 years, you know, you had a chance to talk to Joe Baxter. You know, it's just hasn't been the same. You know, this is a whole new different feeling right now. Yeah. You had the wrong team. Very much so. I mean, 25 years, my life was just gone. Yeah. And you talk about, you know, how do you settle with that you know how do you live with that yeah that's painful that cheers me up because i again it's just a matter of you trusting people again and that trust is based on friendships and not the quality of lawyer you got yeah i want to read this excerpt from your book you say in spite of the pain and hurt however much i engaged in crazed violence and lashed out at the world for thinking it owed me something and the center in my heart there was always something of a natural goodness. This may have been the place from which my fears poured when I was a young child. In that same place, the violence later grew so much larger than life that I stopped believing in myself. But I finally came into a situation where I dared myself to reclaim that natural goodness. That I reclaimed it on San Quentin's death row doesn't change who I am. I've experienced an inner journey that brought me to the life-affirming realization that my violent actions were never a reflection of who I really am. So who are you really? Can you answer that? Yeah. Yeah, a human being, you know. And I'm not just saying that to say that, but I've never felt that way of saying a human being. Who says that? out there and who get a chance to realize that no matter where you are. Okay, what is a day like for you? I mean, what do you do all day? Are you just staring at a wall all day or No, no. Are you still writing? What's happening? Um, I wake up, you know, around 6, 6:30. I know I'm going to exercise because if I don't, everything's not going to go right. So I exercise for about 30, 40 minutes, you know, whatever I think I can get away with without doing a whole lot. Is this in your cell? In my cell. And how, how big is your cell? Uh, nine by four. Wow. And I... Um, About the size of my audio booth here, man. Yes. Mm-hmm. It, 
Oh, for don't say that. Is it really? Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> Just so you get a picture uh, of where I am, I have a picture of where you are. Okay. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Um, so after I exercise, I really don't know what I'm going to do, but I know I, I'm either going to do some writing or I'm going to see what's on the news with this 13-inch color TV I have. And then around 11, 12, 11 o'clock, I usually have phone time, and I spend, you know, an hour, hour and a half on the phone. Uh, then around 1 o'clock, I know we're going to have showers, and we do the shower thing. And around 2, I start writing. And I may go up to about 4 or 5 o'clock. And then the news thing comes back, and then me talking to people on the on the tier, out on the tier standing at my bars talking to people, and then when it gets 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, I don't know what I'm going to do. Okay, so moving to soul to soul, what is the greatest fear that you were able to overcome, and what allowed you to overcome it? Wow, that's a good question. Um, Probably gang violence. Hmm. How do you find refuge on death row? By really sitting down uh, and listening to myself and not overthinking myself. Mm -hmm. I love what you said earlier, by losing your mind, you didn't lose your mind. You lose your mind in order not to lose your mind. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, people say, you know, I, I say to people, you know, I think I'm crazy because I ain't crazy. And that's that's a real, that's acknowledging what these places do to people, number yeah. one. And number two, I think it, it, it validates your human worth. You know, I take both of those to heart. But I also know that I don't want to leave here and not realize that there's that beach, not be able to see that beach. That's the most scariest thing to me in the world, to be out and be, you know, so mentally disabled to see that I'm out. That's the most scariest thing I live with every single day. And meditation doesn't do a lot of help with that. I'm trying to understand. Help me understand. What, what is the scariest thing? It's to get out of prison and not realize that I'm out. Oh. You know, to have become so mentally disabled that I can walk right there on the beach and not even see it. You mm. know? Yeah. I don't want to get out like that to put all these years into something and whatever, you know, you're fighting for your freedom, but your freedom is not seen. You know, you'll never be able to see it. That is real scary to me. And what's so scary about that is that I've been able to witness that in other people. Because you see that people on the outside are still living in in their own prison and suffering. All the time. That's why I like me better than I like anything else. I mean, I have my my trips, but there's some people got some real serious issues out there, you know, Mm -hmm. and I would not want them. Right. There's no way in the world I would want them. Let me ask you this. Um, What was your greatest awakening? What was your greatest awakening? My greatest awakening? My greatest awakening would probably be that I matter, that I can make a difference, Hmm. that I have something to say, and there was power in that because I was on death row. Kids don't, you tell, you know, you tell some juvenile kids, you know, you're on death row and they, their eyes just light up. And if you tell them that you don't have to do anything to get on death row, they light up even brighter. 
Brighter in the sense that you now have their attention, is what you're saying. You get their attention right. when you say, I'm in death yeah, row. Yeah, I have their attention. Yes. What, what's your greatest suffering and what wisdom did you gain from it? It's probably that tattoo I was talking to you about. Mm. Knowing that I had put this on me at the age of 12, and to see that now, it's just, wow, you know. It is an awakening. It, 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 it is, how can you not be awake when you see that? And it's a, and it's a, a, it's a reflection on so many people coming into this system too. If this doesn't, if, if this is not credentials to show someone, I don't know what is. And whenever I'm writing to somebody, I always say that. I want to know what's your most humbling experience. What was the thing or event? What's your most humbling experience? I would, I would imagine. There is nothing more humbling than death row, but I would like for you to give me a specific example of the thing or event that made you to take stock of yourself as a human being in in relationship to what you can and cannot do. I think I think it's being able to reach out to move these bars, like my teacher used to say, just don't try to beat the bars down or climb them, just move them out the way. Yeah. Uh, that I know how to move them out the way and, and they able to reach out. That's humbling to me. Is it also humbling um, to know that now your book is going to be read by many people who wouldn't have? You, that's a trip. You, you know, you wrote this book uh, in 2009, and now here in 2022, people are being exposed to it. That's a trip, right? Yeah, that's a trip. That's a trip. And, you know, it's, it's a trip. I, I can't, when we were talking about corridors, I mean, come on, Really? I mean, how do you get to this one? And I also think a lot about, you know, how this book can go into more into black communities, you know, yeah. that it never was able to do. Yeah. Uh, I, I see that, you know, and now I see this book being able to, I can use Oprah's stamp to get into prisons that it was never allowed to get into prisons. You know, a lot of people say, well, death row, uh, cop killer. We're not letting that book in here, you know. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, it, it is a trip. I, it's hard to believe, you know, and no one I know believes it either. Do you, uh, in spite of being on death row and having the life there that you have, have you ever experienced moments of true grace? Are there moments where you feel like some sense of awe or grace or relief shows up? Yeah, I think I think that's more like being me. Yeah. Finally acknowledging who I was. Yeah, I kind of feel that right there. Mm. And what is your greatest hope from the book going out into the world and, and from this conversation, Jarvis? Oh, that it reaches people. Like you said earlier, it reaches more people than it ever could. That kids will be able to reach this book and read this book. That they can be in libraries. and Yeah, that, that's that, this is sort of like my second win, you know. Well, I want to thank you for this conversation. It's been my great yes. privilege, honor, joy thank to finally so connect with you. Finally, finally, thank finally. So All right. Thank you. All right. We'll talk for in the future. Okay. Bye, Jarvis. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe rate, and review this podcast. 
Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. <laughs>